you know, there was a time many years ago when uh, most people attended church every Sunday. In fact, I remember as a child growing up, it was very unusual to not see somebody pull into the driveway next door on the way to church. You never saw somebody mow their lawn, but if somebody wasn't going to church, they usually had the blinds drawn in the window, uh, so you didn't know they were home. You figured they were away. So things have changed. Um, and people generally went to the church that they were raised in, or they went to the denomination of the church where their parents were raised. That was, that was kind of the norm back in those days. You didn't change denominations or churches very often. But today, of course, that's quite different. People move quite freely in between churches and denominations. And one of the reasons for that, I believe, is because uh, a lot of folks aren't really as concerned about the core values uh, or beliefs of a particular church as much as they're looking for maybe a good kids program or worship, whatever it may be. Uh, they're not as much caught up in the exact doctrine or teaching of the church. Another reason, I think, is because most of us have come to recognize in these days that what really unites us, it's not a particular denomination, but it's our common love and trust in Jesus Christ and a desire to be a transforming presence for him in the community. That's really what unites our heart. That's why we can have fellowship so much um, across all denominational lines. But uh, here at Glad Tidings, um, our church is comprised, as many of you know, of people who have many different church backgrounds, different denomination backgrounds, some even different faith, non-Christian backgrounds before they came to Christ, if any faith at all. Uh, we all come from a diff different mosaic of, of beliefs, maybe in, in denominations from, from years back. But most of us do not come from a Pentecostal tradition. And so this morning, I want to ask you, as we're in the season of Pentecost, moving toward the day of Pentecost, Pentecost Sunday next week, I want to ask you the question, are you Pentecostal? Are you Pentecostal? Now, you're probably thinking, if I'm not, do I have to leave? No, that's not why I'm asking. <laughs> if you've attended uh, Glad Tidings for any length of time, you may even have asked yourself, well, am I Pentecostal? I mean, I go to Glad Tidings, they're a Pentecostal church. I, does that make me Pentecostal? What does it mean to be Pentecostal? I find uh, myself probably at least once a week, if not more, in the course of conversation with somebody that I'm meeting for the first time, uh, they'll ask, what do you do for a living? And so when I work up the nerve to admit that I'm a pastor, they'll usually say, uh, oh, well, what church do you work in? And I'll say, well, I work at Glad Tidings, and I kind of leave it there. But if they push it a bit further and they say, oh, well, what kind of church is that? What denomination are you? Well, then usually my response is, well, we're Protestant. <laughs> and then I might add, and we're affiliated with the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. And then I try to gauge the reaction. And, and, and if I see them flinch, then I realize that they're probably associating the word Pentecostal with those, you know, snake handlers in the back hills of Tennessee. Or maybe with a church where the women can't wear makeup or can't wear pants or whatever the rules may be. But that's not what it means to be Pentecostal. Now, personally, I was not raised in the Pentecostal tradition. I grew up in the mainline denomination. And I'm really grateful for the foundation that I received there. But I didn't grow up in the Pentecostal church. And yet, even when as a teenager, when I was in a part of the mainline denomination, traditional denomination, I always believed, even at that young age, that the ministry and the person of the Holy Spirit was supposed to be the same today as it was back in the book of Acts. I always believed in the power of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believed in, 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 uh, in the miraculous, in the gifts of the Spirit, all those different things. And there were a few of my friends in the mainline churches who believed those things as well. And I find today there's even more of a growing number. 
But my question to you this morning is, are you Pentecostal? Are you Pentecostal? And maybe to help you come to terms with that, let me just take a few minutes this morning to explain what is Pentecost. Because a lot of Christians don't really know what it is. In Acts chapter 2, in the opening verses, we read these words. That when the day of Pentecost came, when the day of Pentecost came, they, the believers, were all together in one place, which Jesus had told them to do in the previous chapter. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, in the Jewish tradition, as you know, when the law was given down from Moses, in Israel there were three major feasts. The first one was Passover, the second one was Pentecost, the third one was Tabernacles. During those three major feasts, which were held on the first, third, and seventh month of the year, all the Jews in the region of Israel were to travel to Jerusalem where they would observe these feasts. And these feasts were really a commemoration or a celebration of various things that God had done redemptively so that his people could know him and that they could fulfill their destiny, which was to be a light to the other peoples of the world, to draw the nations to him. And so these three major feasts were held, but within those three major feasts, as you can see, were seven feasts in total. So under the Feast of Passover, which took place in the first month, on that Passover weekend, you had the Feast of Passover, you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you had the Feast of First Fruits. And then 50 days later, after Passover Sabbath, was to be celebrated the Feast of Pentecost. And then about five months later was the Feast of Tabernacles. And under Tabernacles, you had three feasts as well. You had the Feast of Trumpets, you had the Feast of Atonement, and you had the Feast of Tabernacles, or was also called the Feast of Booths. Now, the first grouping of those three feasts have to do with what God has done to save us. What he provided so that man could be forgiven of his sin and could be reconciled to God. That's what those three feasts represented in Jerusalem in those days. And of course, we know that they were filled in the person of Jesus Christ. The other three on the right side that you see under tabernacles, they are still future. But they have to do with the things that God is going to do when he wraps up human history at the end of the human age. He wraps up human history as we have known it, and he finally comes to dwell among his people. We will forever be with him. He will forever be our God, and we will be his people. So on the one side, you have the whole plan of salvation. On the other side, you have future yet when God will finally come and bring peace to this world. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, will rule on this earth. That is yet future. But in between, you have this whole era that we call the church age, and it's represented in the Feast of Pentecost between the two of them. Because it's at the Feast of Pentecost or the Day of Pentecost or the purpose for Pentecost is for God to fill with his spirit and empower those who were saved, right? That's what Passover represents, who came to him, who were cleansed of their sin, are now filled with the Holy Spirit. And until Jesus comes back, our mission is to be a witness to the world, to be a light that Jesus Christ has come, that he has died for our sin, that we can know God and that we can live with God forever. But in the meantime, we can live in the power of his presence living within us. 
And of course, part of our ministry is to be a light to the world, which Israel was supposed to be, to be a light to the world and to bring people to Jesus Christ. We'll talk a bit more about that next week. So the Feast of Passover was a celebration. If you may recall, if you haven't read the book, you probably saw the movie, Charlton Heston. No, I'm, I'm too old. Ten Commandments, anybody see the Ten Commandments? Say, no, I saw the first three, but okay. It's called the Ten Commandments. But in any case, on Passover, you may recall, when Israel had been for hundreds of years in the land of Egypt as slaves, God sent a deliverer named Moses, okay? Went to Pharaoh, he said, God has said to tell you, let my people go. He didn't want to let them go. So through a series of plagues, God begins to demonstrate his power, not just over the Pharaoh, but he demonstrates each of those plagues, demonstrated his power over a particular Egyptian deity, if you study him, it's a fascinating study. God was very deliberate in the plagues that he was, that he was, uh, that he was releasing because he didn't want to, it wasn't just to harm people. That wasn't the purpose. It was to demonstrate to the people that the gods they were trusting in were false gods. And he was the true God, and he wanted them to know him. That was God's heart for the people of Egypt. But in any case, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He would not let them go. So you may recall on the 10th plague, what did God say? He said that the spirit of death or judgment is going to move through the land. And every person, man, woman, or child, who was the firstborn in their household, they will die. Unless you take the blood of a lamb. Right? What does that speak about? Passover. That speaks about, right, Jesus. Unless you take the blood of a lamb and you put it over your doorposts and mantles, he said, then the person in that household, if they're a firstborn, they will die unless that blood is there. But he says, as I pass through the land, when I see the blood... I will spare you, okay? Now, here's what was happening. A lot of times we, we've heard it preached maybe, or we've, we thought, well, okay, God is passing over the land, you know, and if I see the blood, I'll just kind of skip over you and they'll kill you. Now, what it's saying is that as the judgment is coming to the land, when I see the blood, the Lord says, I will pass over you. What does that mean? The Hebrew word literally means I will hover over you. So as the curse is going through the land, the Holy Spirit says, I will hover over your house and protect you, that it will not come near you when I see the blood. And it speaks to the abiding presence of the Lord in our lives, that even as judgment may pass over a land over times of wickedness, that he knows those who are his, and he hovers over his people, he protects them. So that's what Passover was about. That's what they were celebrating. Okay, for 1,500 years, they were celebrating the Feast of Passover to remember how God had delivered them and also had protected them. So again, 1,500 years later, Jesus comes on the scene, and John the Baptist looks at Jesus. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. So we see that Jesus fulfilled that. In fact, on that day of Passover, try to imagine this, Jesus is in Jerusalem. There are tens if not hundreds of thousands of Jews crowded in Jerusalem to observe Passover feast. It was just another year, another Passover feast for them. Most of them didn't even know who Jesus was. But on that day, on the very day that the priest would take the lamb in the morning and kill it to prepare it for sacrifice, at that exact same moment, the third hour of the morning, the Bible says, at the exact same moment, Jesus was nailed to the cross. And then six hours later, when that lamb was taken out and placed into an oven to be prepared for the evening meal, at that very same moment, Jesus was taken down off the cross, and he was placed into the tomb. And in the tomb, 
Jesus was for the next day, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Most of us remember that leaven represents sin. Some call it yeast. It's different than that, but it's similar to yeast. And, and we're not to have sin in our life. It's likened to leaven that you put into bread. It makes it rise. It grows. Well, the reason that they used unleavened bread is because it represented Jesus. Jesus was placed in the tomb. But because Jesus had no sin in him, death had no power over him. So it could not keep him in the tomb. That was the Feast of Unleavened Bread the next day. And then the following day, we have the third day, is the Feast of First Fruits. What happens in the Feast of First Fruits? Well, in that time of the year, the harvest is just beginning. And so they would take some of the crop, the first fruit of that crop, and they would wave it before God, offer it to God. They were offered to God as thanksgiving, recognizing, God, we have this because of you. Because we live in the desert, and yet you prosper us, you provide for us. This is a miracle, and we thank you for this. But it was also faith in the fact that this first fruits we offer to you because we know that there's a whole harvest still to come that's going to follow this harvest that we wave before you. It was called the Feast of First Fruits. The Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day during the Feast of First Fruits. And 1 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 15, that he was as the first of the harvest. Jesus was our first fruits. What was he saying? If you place your trust in me, that just as I rose from the dead, I will cleanse you of your sin, death will have no power over you, and I will rise you from the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. You see? So Jesus fulfilled the Feast of First Fruits, but we also experience that fulfillment in ourselves when we place in Jesus our faith in Christ and we see him at the resurrection. So those first three feasts were fulfilled in Jesus during the Passover weekend. And I personally experienced those benefits of what Jesus did in Passover when I surrender my life to him. At that time, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 2 that my sinful nature is put to death, it is buried, and then Jesus gives me his nature. And what happens? If the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will quicken you. He will make you fully alive. If the same spirit dwells in you. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what Passover was about. That's what Jesus fulfilled. His nature is now in me, and death has no power over that nature. His nature is in me, and he will raise me up to live a new kind of life. It's not just about the resurrection. When I die one day, it's about living a resurrected life. Now I can live a new kind of life because Jesus lives in me. He is the living spirit. But here's the key. That new kind of life is not something I live by my own determination. And that's where so many of us get frustrated in our Christian life. We just try real, real hard to be good Christians. The Lord doesn't ask us to. Yes, there's discipline involved. There's choices involved and so on. But what we need to learn to do more than anything, Jesus made it very simple. He just said this, abide in me. That's all I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you into a friendship, into a relationship. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, then whatever you ask will be given to you. It's not about striving. It's about abiding. And that's where the Feast of Pentecost comes in. The word Pentecost simply means 50th, right? 
We have that prefix, pent, pente, pentagon, right? Uh, it just means five-sided or five, and cost means 50th. It, it was held on the 50th day after the Passover Sabbath. But the Feast of Pentecost is also known as the Feast of Harvest. So you had the Feast of First Fruits when the crop was first coming in and the first fruits was taken and offered to God as an offering, knowing that much more was coming. So over those 50 days, of course, the crop continues to grow. And now it's abundant everywhere. And so on the 50th day, it was also called the Feast of Harvest. So it was a celebration of the end of the grain harvest, that they had all this food supply now to carry them through through the remainder of the year. But the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Harvest, was also a prophetic picture of what Jesus intended to do when he sent the Holy Spirit and baptized his people with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It was the prophetic manifestation of the fruitfulness that would come in the life of the believers who had been through the whole Passover right, ministry of being cleansed of their sin, buried in Christ, being raised in newness of life. That's what water baptism is next week. All that happened within our heart and now being made clean, we are ready for the, to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he comes with power for the purpose that we see on that Feast of Harvest. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to his followers, not just to the disciples, he said to all of his followers, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. Uh, another translation of the ends of the earth is to the remote regions of the world. And we see that fulfilled today. And when that happened on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says that 3,000 people, in that single day, 3,000 people became followers of Jesus Christ. You might say that they were even the first fruits of the harvest that was still to come. And all down through the church age, these last 2,000 years, there have been millions upon millions upon millions of people who have been part of that harvest. In fact, today it's estimated that almost one million people come to Jesus every single day around the world. One million people. Now, a lot of people are born and die every single day as well, but one million people coming to Christ every single day. And it happens predominantly where there are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and evangelizing in the power of that Spirit. So the question becomes, if that's what Pentecost is about, is it just something that we commemorate, is it, or is it something that we can experience today? Can we experience Pentecost today? Because there are a lot of people in the body of Christ in different denominations who would say no. They believe in Pentecost. Pentecost happened 2,000 years ago, but the Holy Spirit was sent with that kind of demonstration because the church kind of needed a catalyst. It needed to get kind of you know, catapulted into, into doing the work it's called to do. So they needed the Holy Spirit that way. They needed the miracles. They needed all that kind of stuff, the gifts. But we don't need that today because we have the Scripture. That's, that's all we need. We just need the Bible. And so we still commemorate or we memorialize Pentecost today, but we don't expect the same thing to happen to us that happened to them 2,000 years ago. That's a nice theory, but it's not biblical. What does the Bible say? Once the Holy Spirit filled the room, we saw in those first two verses we read in Acts chapter 2, once the Holy Spirit filled the room where they were sitting, it goes on to say, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. 
All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, the Greek word tongues is, our, is, is the, rather our English word tongues comes from the Greek word glossa. Glossa is just as frequently translated in other Bible translations as the word languages. Okay? Tongues just means languages. In other words, another translation says this. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. What does that mean? It means that tongues is not something that you should be afraid of. It's not something that should weird you out. Why? Imagine after service, pardon me, you speak English, that's your only tongue. And somebody comes up to you and begins to speak to you in French. What are you going to do? Ah! Or they speak to you in Spanish or Bengali or some of the other languages, you know, that, that we have, that we have represented in our congregation, Swahili, whatever. You're not going to freak out. You're just going to say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't understand that language, right? You're not going to think they're crazy. You're not going to think they're emotional. You know, they've lost it. Why? Because what are they doing? They're just speaking another language. It's a language that you don't understand, but it is still a normal language. And that's what tongues is. Tongues is a language. Would you tell the person beside you, tongues is just a language. Go ahead. Get over it. It's just a language. Now, some have referred to it as a heavenly language. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, then I'm only a clanging symbol. Now, some have taken that scripture to mean that tongues are a heavenly language or that tongues is an angelic language. But that's not what Paul is saying. In the context of the scripture, all Paul is saying is, listen, I know many of you speak in tongues. But just because you speak in tongues, if you don't have, if you don't have love, it doesn't matter how spiritual you may think you are, you're just making noise. Everything the Holy Spirit gives you by way of gift, you need the character, the person of the Holy Spirit in you in order to operate properly. And to do that, of course, and, and he is, of course, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of love. But if you don't have that, again, you're just making noise. So speaking in tongues is speaking in a language. It's in a language that is other than your own, that you don't understand with your natural mind, but a language that Jesus gives to you. Now, I've been around Pentecost circles long enough that I have heard on a few occasions over the years somebody give a message in tongues. For the congregation, 1 Corinthians 14 talks about that, perfectly biblical, gives a message in tongues. And it sounded familiar. You ever have that happen? Someone speaks in tongues, and it, it kind of sounds familiar. It, it sounds like a language that you might even recognize. And I've had it happen a few times where the person who gave the message spoke in a language that was understood by somebody else in the congregation from a different nation. And so God just miraculously, as a sign to them, or for whatever purpose he had in mind, gave them this language, and they gave the message in tongues. And you could tell, man, that kind of sounds familiar. And then to discover later on, it actually was a very earthly language. One time it happened, it was German. Another time it happened, it was Mandarin. I can remember those distinctly. And it was a real sign to the individuals who understood, who heard that language. In fact, I was talking to a, a brother in our own church here who was in Sri Lanka or someplace, and I believe I got the story straight, that the person did not speak English who gave the message in tongue, but gave the message in English. 
And it really impacted the person who heard, who was English, knowing this person did not speak in English. That would kind of settle the debate in your mind, wouldn't it, whether or not tongues is for the day. You see, English is just a language. But if you live in some remote place that's never heard it, English sounds really crazy. Imagine what your language sounds like, right? I mean, Deborah, I see you nodding your head. You know, Deborah speaks French. She speaks Swahili. You know, speaks English. But I'm sure English probably sounded weird or trying to learn English. Why? It's just a language. So that can happen. Again, tongues is a normal language. Acts chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, what was the sound? Of people speaking in tongues as the Spirit enabled them, from verse 4. A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard what? Gibberish? They heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, they're from here, not from where we come from. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? I remember uh, several months ago, and I shared this with the two individuals, because I was really encouraged by it, but uh, we were here in prayer meeting, and uh, it was Pastor Susan, actually, who gave a message in tongues. And what really impacted me was, first of all, as she was speaking, you could sense that the language, because I've heard Pastor Susan speak in, in her own private tongues, and it was different. And as she was speaking uh, corporately for a message for the, the people that were gathered here, the tongue that she was using, though I didn't understand the language itself, the tongue that, that, that the Lord had given her to speak was very distinct. Like you could sense like, yeah, but this, you could sense like sentence, structure, you know, you could really sense that. And then when it came toward the end of the message that wasn't very long, probably just a minute, a minute or two, when it came to the end, there were three distinct sentences that were identical except for a change, a fluctuation one time in each, in each sentence. So that kind of caught my attention. I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. Because I really feel it's from the Lord, but I wonder with the interpretation, will the, will the same thing happen? And so the interpretation came, and it was Tanya. I know I'm putting Tanya on the spot, but I really appreciate Tanya's sensitivity as well to the Holy Spirit. And she began to give them interpretation. And you could sense, again, that weight. You could sense, okay, this is, this is from the Lord. But as she was giving the interpretation, though I was listening to the message, in the back of my mind, I'm also thinking, okay, I'm waiting until the end. I'm just really curious how this is going to translate, how it's going to interpret. And uh, when she came toward the end of the interpretation, I know she wasn't even thinking about this, but as the Holy Spirit was giving her the words in English, as she came to the interpretation, she repeated those three last sentences word for word, except for one single word in every sentence. It was an identical interpretation to what the Lord had given. I know sometimes in our congregations, we have tongues and interpretation. I believe many times it is, but oftentimes, if I'm going to be honest with you, oftentimes it's an exhortation. People who are sensitive to that and people who, you know, maybe step out sometimes even too quickly will give an interpretation or even a tongue sometimes. You know, if, if, you, if, you, if you're going to uh, have someone around that will interpret it kind of thing, you can kind of give it really quickly. And then quite oftentimes it's an exhortation. It's an encouragement to the body. But you get those times when you know. You know what I'm saying, Pentecostal folk? Been around for a while? That you know it's God. There's times you just say, that's God. And it's not just because it applies to you. There's just this... There's something more than just an exhortation or an encouragement. You really sense it's an interpretation of a message from the Lord. Well, the reason I just share these stories is to say that to speak in tongues is to speak a normal language. 
as the Holy Spirit gives it to you. Now, it may not be a language that you've heard before, but I'm pretty sure that it's either a language that's somewhere in the world, or it's an ancient language, or it may be even a dead language, or it may even be a language that's spoken in heaven. But whatever it is, hear me, saints, it's a language. It is a language that communicates. I also believe, um, I don't have a scripture for this, so I'll just throw this out here, you can throw it away, but I also believe that we can grow in tongues. We can grow as we, as we speak more, as we worship more, as we intercede more in the language the Lord has given us. I found in my own language that it actually begins to expand and develop. Now, that's just my own personal sense. I've heard different opinions, but, but I just want to, again, encourage us to understand that to speak in tongues is to speak a normal language that the Holy Spirit has given to you. So you may ask, well, why does the Holy Spirit give us another language? Well, there's a number of different reasons. We're going to get into this morning. But when I was looking up the word glossa, um, I was also reminded that from that Greek word gloss, which means language or languages, we also get our English word glossary. Well, what's a glossary? A glossary is found at the back of the book, right? The back of a book, and it's a list of words with definitions. Why? Because some of those words are, are believed to be probably unfamiliar to the reader. And so you're reading through the book, and you see a star or an asterisk or something that says, okay, you know, go to the glossary, and you go, and it'll explain what that word means. So it helps you to identify words that are unfamiliar to the reader. And I believe myself that tongues is given to us by God to help us to communicate with God. Because you see, it's our spirit that really communicates with God. That's why we're made alive in our spirit to God. It's our spirit that communicates with the spirit of God, that connects with the spirit of God. And so in order to do that, the Lord has given us a language that is unfamiliar to our natural mind and even unavailable to our natural mind. In fact, studies have been done. I'm going to get ahead of myself here now, or this is for another day, but I'll just say quickly. Uh, we actually have studies. I, got, I can't remember what university. It was Massachusetts. Uh, I have it in my office. But actually, they, they uh, you know, put the wires and stuff to people uh, and had them, had them just worship, speak in tongues, and they discover that when the person is speaking in tongues, that actually the part of the brain that is used for language is actually dormant. It bypasses that part of the natural brain, and the person is speaking in other tongues. Very interesting, isn't it? What does it say to me? It says that the scripture says that it's your spirit that speaks to God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love your mind, that you can't use rationale, those kind of things. But there's another dimension of understanding as spiritual beings that God makes available to us that he wants to operate in. Here's another reason why I believe, this is only a personal theory. Another reason why I believe that when God baptized with the Holy Spirit, that we begin to speak in other tongues, is not only so that we just have a practical evidence that something has happened. I mean, that's valid, Right. If not, you could say, well, how do you know you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Uh, I don't know. You know, I, my fingernails turn purple or something. Like, there's, there's got to be something, you know. And so the Lord has given us this tongue, which has many purposes. But I really believe one of the reasons is this. is because with the baptism of the Holy Spirit intended to send us into the world to be witnesses, to walk in the Spirit, right, to live and move in the power of the Holy Spirit, what does God want us to learn from day one? He wants us to learn don't trust your natural mind. Trust the Holy Spirit. Right? And I really believe this, that the moment I'm saved, why? Because 
nine times out of ten, when somebody is baptized with the Holy Spirit, before they, get to, before they begin to speak in tongues, they can sense the Holy Spirit over them. They can sense the Holy Spirit welling up within them. But their natural mind is saying, don't, don't, don't. The natural mind is saying, that's just you. You're just making up the words. Anybody ever experienced that or know of that? Right? Isn't that so common? And so what do we have to do? We have to allow our spirit to bypass our natural mind. We have to not shut down in the sense of being foolish, but we just need to, to step it aside and say, Holy Spirit, fill me. Jesus, fill me with your spirit. We need to open our mouth and allow the spirit to flow. Bypassing the natural mind. And what happens when we do that? Then we begin to learn. That's what it means to walk in the spirit as well. That when you're walking down the street and the Holy Spirit prompts you and says, hey, go over to that person. Your natural mind says, don't. Right? Your natural mind says you're crazy, right? But your spirit says, go, yes, that's the Holy Spirit. I've got to get past my natural rationale. I've got to learn to listen to the voice of the Spirit and to do what He is telling me to do. And then you do it, and you know what happens? The Holy Spirit does something your natural mind would never have believed. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Any case, that's for free. Maybe we'll repeat that some other time when we speak on this again. So, again, tongues is, is uh, given to us by God to communicate from our spirit in ways that may be unfamiliar to our natural mind. Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that one, of the, one way the Holy Spirit helps us or empowers us is that when we don't know how to connect with God, we don't know what to say, what to pray, Paul says the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. Now, again, I found the Greek word really, really fascinating. I'll be honest with you, it's too long to pronounce. It's like 17 letters. I counted them. I'm not even going to try. You want me to try? Okay, here we go. <laughs> Hooper rent to Gano. Something like that. Okay, but what's interesting is that the prefix is the word Hooper, H-U-P-E-R. And from that, we get our English word super or hyper. If you want that word, let me know. I'll email it to you. Or did I put it down? No, I didn't. Okay. I'll email it to you if you really, really have to have it, just to see if you can pronounce it better than me. What does that mean, super or hyper? Paul says we are to pray in the spirit, but we're also to pray in our natural mind. There's nothing wrong with praying with our natural mind. We pray with our understanding. Just like we worship the Lord, we can worship in tongues. We can worship in our native language. That's fine. But there are also times we understand that our natural mind, our natural understanding has limitations. And there are times we don't know how to pray. We don't know how to get that breakthrough. We don't know how to move to that next place. And so what, God, what has God done? He has given us a language for our spirit so that we pray in our spirit, a language that we don't understand with our natural mind, but our spirit is connecting with God. How? As the Holy Spirit rises up within us, what does he do? He supercharges or turbocharges your prayer. And those are the times you're able to move into a burden with God that you can't do in the natural mind or you experience a breakthrough that you can't do with your natural understanding. And if you speak in tongues, by the way, it's not intended just for prayer, as beautiful as, as that is. It's also intended to be part of our worship. We're to worship the Lord with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. In fact, one of the most beautiful aspects of worship when I first came into Pentecostal church and I found it kind of peculiar, but I was still curious because I knew it was real was when the worship would begin to crescendo and then people would just break out in other tongues and just worship the Lord in the spirit. I thought, man, this is real. This is real. And I want in on this. 
And so tongues also has to do with worship, it has to do with spiritual warfare, and a number of other things that maybe are for another day. Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 14 that anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. In fact, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But then, of course, on the day of Pentecost, we read that each one heard their own language being spoken. And I just want to encourage us this morning that if you came from any denomination, any religion, any kind of Christian formation that in any way taught you that the baptism with the Holy Spirit or speaking in other tongues was strange or not for today or not biblical, I tell you unequivocally, you were misinformed. I believe the teachers were sincere, but they embraced a system of doctrine rather than the Spirit. You see, it's the doctrine, it's the letter that kills, it's the Spirit that gives life. And He won't contradict the Word of God, but He will bring the Word of God to fulfillment in your life. Without the Spirit, we're just grinding under, under the flesh. We're just trying to please God, but we can't do it because we don't have the capacity with our own resolve. We need the Holy Spirit, and He has been given to us as a beautiful gift. Every gift God freely gives us, James says, is good and perfect. There were 120 people in that upper room who were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. There were thousands added to the church that day who I have no doubt experienced the same thing. And what that means is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not just for the apostles. It was not just for the people in the church 2,000 years ago. It is and it was for everyone, for every single one of us here this morning. And you may be wondering whether or not this gift is for you. You might say, hey, pastor, I'm not against it. I'm glad to see other people experience that. But I don't know if it's really for me. Well, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up to address the crowd that had gathered. And they were wondering what they had to do to get on in this promise that Jesus was fulfilling. And the scripture says this, that Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Please understand, the gift is the Holy Spirit, okay? The evidence of having received that gift is the beautiful language of speaking the spiritual language, of speaking in tongues. But the gift is the Holy Spirit himself. He goes on to say, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Again, I'm just kind of assuming that you know, we're from different backgrounds, or maybe someone's visiting here this morning. I just want to remind us that the gift of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in other tongues, it did not pass away with the apostles 2,000 years ago. It wasn't something they needed, but we don't need. Can you imagine? We live in a culture that is very much like the culture of their day. If they needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire and power, I guarantee you we need the same person today, the same ministry of the Holy Spirit in our midst today. And so that promise, uh, uh, Peter said, re, uh, quoting the prophet Joel, he said that promise is for you and it's for your children. What does that mean? It is for every single generation until Jesus comes back. Every generation needs the Holy Spirit. Now we began this morning talking about those three major feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. We know that Passover was fulfilled, right? And we live and enjoy the benefits of Passover, don't we? Every single one of us who know Jesus, right? We enjoy the benefits of what Jesus fulfilled in those Passover feasts, right? 
with the Feast of Tabernacles, we know that it's still future. How many of us here this morning who know Jesus know that one day we are going to be with him forever, right? We're going to dwell with him and him with us. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's yet future, but we know we're in on that. In fact, you know what the next feast is? Four of the seven feasts have been fulfilled in the first century. Passover, Pentecost were fulfilled, and we live in the benefits of it today. We're waiting for the next feast to be fulfilled. Because right now we're just kind of moving in the Holy Spirit. We're, we're working with the harvest, the gathering of the harvest. That's what it's all about right now. We're in that kind of 50 days of, of harvesting. That's what we're doing until Jesus comes. Do you know what the next feast is? It's the first feast of the Feast of Trumpets. The first fe the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the Feast of Trumpets. It's saying, okay, cool. No, this is awesome. The Feast of Trumpets in the Hebrew language, trumpets, the word literally means not the blowing of a horn, though that will happen. What the trumpets means is ingathering. That's the Hebrew word for trumpets. The next feast that is to be fulfilled on the redemptive calendar of God is the Feast of Trumpets. What does that mean? Thessalonians, Paul said, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, right? With a trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to be with the Lord in the air, with them. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. See, we are waiting for the Feast of Trumpets. We are waiting for the rapture. That's just an English word that means to be caught up, to be gathered up together. That is the next feast to be fulfilled. If Jesus fulfilled to the letter, to the minute, the first four feasts, do you think he's going to fulfill the next one? Right? And you know, another interesting thing is, and this is a whole revelation teaching. I believe this. In fact, I've, I've, I've talked to Messianic Jews who believe this as well, that Jesus is going to return on the Feast of Trumpets. We don't know which year. But just as he fulfilled Passover, just as the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost on the Jewish calendar, I'm expecting Jesus to come on the Feast of, Trump, on the Feast of Trumpets. I don't know which day it's going to be, what year it's going to be, rather, but I believe that. Anyway, may or may not happen as, as scheduled, but it's happened before. Why wouldn't it? But that's what we're waiting for next. But the point is this. If you can experience Passover, if you're going to experience Tabernacles, do you think that maybe you can also experience Pentecost? Right? Isn't it for all of us? It's for every single one of us. And so I'm going to ask the worship team to join me. And I close with this simple question. Are you Pentecostal? Are you Pentecostal? I'm not asking, are you affiliated with a Pentecostal denomination? I'm asking, are you Pentecostal? So, Paul, how do I know? What does it mean to be Pentecostal? I believe to be Pentecostal simply means this, that you give Jesus permission to do in your life what he did in the lives of those who gathered on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. And you say, Paul, what do you mean give Jesus permission? I mean exactly that. Because every single promise that God has for you the promise that Jesus made to you, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The promise is for you, but that promise is only fulfilled in the lives of people who will say, Jesus, do it here. Holy Spirit, I receive you. It can be happening all around you. 
But it's not until you say, Jesus, I believe you, that this promise is for me. I want this promise in my life. I want to experience the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I receive you. Will you stand with me this morning?